1: And indeed, we are all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship and business. We talk a lot about business here. You are on with Get Down to Business, and I'm your host, Shalom Klein. Remember, you can always download podcasts from Get Down to Business on my website at ShalomKlein.com. And while you are there, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Shalom Klein. It's going to be a jam-packed week of content and information you will not want to miss. It's a live show. You can call in with your questions to our beautiful studio here in Elk Grove Village, 312-642-5600. We're powered by our good friends at HR, your solution center. Give them a call, 630-928-0510. We've got a packed studio of some fantastic people, so let's get right into it. I'm joined here in studio by the fantastic and wonderful Jason, the head of school for the Chicago Academy of the Arts. Uh, Jason, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. (laughs) So Jason Patera, so tell us uh, your story. And uh, of, of finding the school, and I, I can tell you with the smile on your face, you're just so passionate about the work of the Chicago Academy of the Arts. So I, I work at the the coolest high
2: school in the world, and uh, we're the Chicago Academy for the Arts. We're in the River West neighborhood. We've been there for about 35 years. I've been there, depending on when you start counting, for the past 20 or 25. And I found this place through a bizarre set of coincidences, I was on a delivery for this music shop I worked at when I was 16 years old, and uh, they sent me to this th- to this school. I walk in the door and I'm thinking, "This is a high school, really? Where's the barbed wire? My high school's got barbed wire. My high school's got police out front. Why does everybody here look so happy?" And I just started hanging out there. The woman who was the principal, I did this for a couple of years, 16, 17, 18 years old. The woman who was the principal pulls me aside one day and explains. She is determined that I'm going to become a high school teacher. I thought this was a crazy idea. I was going to be a rock star. And she says, you were going to be a high school teacher. She made me go to college. She made me finish the program. And she said, when you finish, you're going to come back here and teach.
1: We're chatting with Jason Patera, the head of school for the Chicago Academy for the Arts. And Jason, you have described... Um, the school as a magical place Um, your words not mine Uh, tell us a little bit about the outcomes tell us about the the graduates and the folks that are coming out of this as you say magical place sure well the the educational model here
2: is rigorous academic courses and then there's three to five hours every day of specialized arts training So students who come through this program are well qualified to audition successfully at all the best uh, arts conservatories and colleges in the country. And about two thirds of them do that. And many go on to achieve the the best possible success in the arts fields. One of the leads in Hamilton right now is one of our alums. Uh, Another one of our alums has written three or four number one songs in the last few years. Uh, We have some Grammy winners uh, among our alums. About two-thirds of our alums go into the arts when they leave the school. Another third, though, they don't pursue the arts. They go into law or they go into finance or they go into science or they go into mathematics because they're well-prepared to do those things as well.
1: And are those your boring examples or uh, are you proud of them too? (laughs) We are absolutely proud of them. You know,
2: (laughs) it's when a a 14-year-old walks through the door, we want them thinking that they're going to be the next Spielberg, that they're going to be the next Baryshnikov, that they're going to write the next great American novel. When you're 14, you're supposed to dream big, and a lot of our alums succeed on that level. But we're thinking w- what we're doing is actually something really bigger, that we're preparing them to be successful no matter what path they take, whether that's the arts or or something totally different.
1: Behind those success stories of all of those graduates, and you just named many very, very uh, notable, uh, noteworthy uh, e- e- uh, examples of alums that have come through the Chicago Academy for the Arts, There must be a very, very talented uh, faculty and administration that's enabling all of this work to take place. Obviously, I see you here in studio. You're, You're beaming from ear to ear, and you've probably told this story hundreds, perhaps even thousands of times, but tell us about your colleagues and the people that make it all happen.
2: These are the best teachers in the world. I have absolute confidence in that. We're an independent school, and so as an independent school, we can draw our faculty from a variety of sources. All of our arts teachers are relevant professionals in the world. So when you're, in, uh, when you're in dance class, your dance teacher is somebody with significant experience and success in that field. When you're in music class or if you're in an acting class, these are people who have, who have notable achievements in that field and also a passion and effectiveness for teaching. Combine that with a culture of mentorship, a culture of relationships. I, I'm the head of the school. I know every single kid in the building. Every kid's got my cell phone number. It's a very family-like atmosphere. When you combine that expertise with that that closeness in the community, the outcomes are bound to be fantastic.
1: So, Jason, you mentioned that uh, the Chicago Academy for the Arts is an independent school. Um, how are your students and families finding out about the school, and how is the school funded? So, so I'm glad you asked, asked that. It, we are actually one of
2: two schools in Chicago, arts high schools in Chicago, with virtually the same name. So there's one school called the Chicago High School for the Arts. They call themselves Shy Arts. They're a public school. They're part of CPS. And we are an independent school, Chicago Academy for the Arts. Uh, independence means that our students come from all over the place. They come from certainly the city of Chicago. They come from Naperville. They come from Winnetka. We have a student who comes in from Whitewater, Wisconsin every day. It's a three-hour trip one way. Um, In independent school, we don't get any money from the state. We don't get any money from the federal government. All of our money comes through a combination of tuition and fundraising. We do a substantial amount of fundraising because every year we award almost a million and a half dollars in financial aid and scholarships to help make it possible for elite young artists to be able to enroll in our program.
1: Obviously, arts is in the school name. How do you... Stay current on the latest uh, and greatest in the world of, of arts. Uh, d- do you frequently have speakers and visitors to the school? A school like ours, on, staying
2: current on the arts, fr- arts front is pretty easy because we're able to attract all sorts of guest artists all the time. They might come in for an afternoon and hang out with the students. They might be in residency for three or four months. Education everywhere is changing very rapidly, though. It's, re- it's a revolutionary pace of change. And schools everywhere have to sort out between, is this a fad that's going to go away in two months, or are these changes things that we need to get on board and adopt? Um, the training that we're able to provide our teachers and our small size and flexibility allows us to respond rapidly to the, the changes in the educational environment.
1: Are there any models uh, that you're following around the country uh, that you are essentially replicating, or are there other schools that are replicating the model that you have created here in Chicago?
2: We are absolutely the standard bearer. There are only four independent arts high schools in the entire country. We 're the only one that's not a boarding school we're the only one that's in the, in a city environment so so we uh, we are unique in that regard and we're proud of that
1: so Jason uh, our listeners are surely uh, amazed by the examples that you've provided the story your story which truly is incredible I understand uh, the Chicago Academy for the Arts is really the only place that you've worked and it's it's clearly as you described it as a magical place what can people do to step up? I realize that uh, you rely on donations, but tell us how people can get involved and support your marvelous work. The most important thing
2: people can do is spread the word about the work that we're doing. Like I said, it's a magical place. We've had a long history of enormous success with our alums. People can tell their friends, if you know a really high-achieving young artist who would benefit from an education like this, send them to our school. We're a high school. We take transfer students, but we also have a great Saturday and summer program for students in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. And, and we're all the time we're recruiting for music, dance, uh, media arts, visual arts, theater, and musical theater.
1: Incredible. Incredible. And uh, folks that, want, that, that potentially know people in the arts that might want to volunteer or step up, uh, how can they uh, get involved that way? The best way to learn more about us is our website, ChicagoAcademyForTheArts.org.
2: And it's got information not only about giving not only about the audition and application process, but, but ways for people to spread the word and get involved.
1: Absolutely fantastic. Jason Patera, thank you so much for joining us uh, here in the studio telling us about this magical place, Chicago Academy for the Arts. One more time, the website, so our listeners can find out more about ways to get involved. ChicagoAcademyForTheArts.org. Fantastic, Jason Patera, the head of School Chicago Academy for the Arts. I uh, appreciate your time on the program. We'll be sure to follow the uh, the progress and the story. Uh, of all the fantastic work that you're doing. Speaking of stories, we've got many, many more coming up on the program today. Uh, We are the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship, and we have some fantastic guests lined up today. You don't want to miss a moment of it. Also, uh, a special treat towards the end of the program. We've got some tips, advice, and information for all of you small business owners out there. You don't want to miss it, Chicago. You're listening to get down to business. I'm your host, Shalom Klein. You could get on my website, shalomklein.com. And that's where you get a sneak peek of who's going to be on next week on this very program. Uh, And uh, be sure to check out our wonderful sponsors, Tandem HR. They are our solution center. Give them a call, 630-928-0510. They also have a fantastic new website with a great blog of information about the Affordable Care Act and all sorts of compliance information that you need. Stay current if you are running a business and you have employees in this day and age. Check out our website, TandemHR.com. But Chicago, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Get Down to Business, the show all about small business, jobs, and entrepreneurship. I'm thrilled to be joined by a returning guest, uh, Dr. Mitch Weisberg, the Chief Medical Officer of Viomedicus, as well as Kate Brady, the Vice President of Business Development for Viomedicus. Uh, thank you both for joining us.
3: Thanks for having us.
1: Well, Kate, uh, Viomedicus, you are uh, you're working hard at, hard at shaking up the experience for both consumers and and for providers and for employers in the in the healthcare space, uh, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing and, I guess, why it's making such an impact. Uh, let's start on the patient side.
3: Well, we improve the health of individuals who have multiple chronic conditions, and we do this through behavioral change that's brought about with licensed clinical social workers, so it's not just an app. It's, uh, it's, it's
1: fascinating, and... For so long, the process has been just the process. and the system is the system and, and people are expected to go through the same the same process of a primary care physician and uh, they don't have that. you just described it as a guide, that licensed clinical social worker. Uh, Dr. Weisberg, tell us uh, why. Uh, on the provider side, this approach is so unique and, and frankly, a, a, a better process. Thank you, Shalom. So uh,
4: when I'm talking uh, to providers, I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to us because I am I am one of them yes. and uh, have been for 27 years. And I know, so I think I pretty much know uh, what we're all. We have a pretty collective experience, and I think that is one of where We do, our bread and butter, if you will, are exactly these patients, those that have uh, multiple uh, chronic conditions simultaneously. And I could tell you that it, you know, and I'm sure my colleagues are in the same position. Yes, I do have a personal relationship with each of my patients. Uh, I think I love most of them and most of them love me and all that, but that's just not enough to help them be well right we we really need to focus all our time with the patient on really managing the the nuts and bolts of these chronic conditions and sort of the well-being might you know not get into the equation and so what i love about bimedicus why I, and why i became the uh, chief medical officer is because it it offers so, uh, something for us to to send our patients to to know that they're going to get that personalized attention, uh, because it might, their problems with well being might be something like they can't manage technology. And the VICARE program and the licensed clinical social worker will help them.
1: Get better at technology and overcome that stress. So, Mitch, you mentioned that you've uh, you've been a, in uh, <laughs> in medicine for uh, 27 years, which means that you started at age five. We'll perhaps cover that <laughs> later <laughs> uh, later in the program. But in all of that time, and and long before that too, uh, the as I mentioned, the system hasn't changed. You mentioned time, and you mentioned relationships with patients. The reality is that the. The time has been limited forever. That yes. folks have appointments, and doctors are triple booked, and they're always taking a reactive approach as a pro, as opposed to a proactive approach. Yes. Why wasn't Vi, Vi Medicus around sooner? And tell us the story of of why uh, of why this approach is working. Thank you. And um, so you know, I
4: I thought I think about this exact question continuously. And that's why it was when I was first introduced to Vimeticus, it clicked because it was something that I had already envisioned uh, that I did not know already existed. So and uh, it's really in my analysis it's not the system and it's not the doc- and it's not us and it's not the patients. It's simply the nature of of our of what we do. We we're, we're, we're science we're scientists. We we understand our patients at a molecular level, and that's complicated. It takes a lot of time. But so that we, this whole thing, this this whole thing about wellness really is not something we have the time or resource to also do.
1: So, Kate, uh, on the employer side, uh, which is a all important issue over here, because often employers are are the ones carefully watching over their costs. Employers have been frustrated with uh with a lack of options and and very limited solutions. Uh tell us a little bit about the conversations that you and your colleagues of Viomedicus have been having with employers and why they have been so excited and frankly uh quite animated about the uh about the the new solutions that are being provided to them that Mitch was just talking a little bit
3: about. Sure. First of all, employers are really working hard to control their health care spend, but they don't always know where that big spend is coming from. And so one of the first things that we do is we analyze their health care spend and we find that small percentage of their employee population who, who are the most expensive. And we then provide them with a solution that will actually not just control costs, but We'll give them a positive ROI by the, by the end of 12 to 18 months.
1: Interesting. And, and you have described in the past that the key differentiator uh, is that licensed clinical social worker. And as I mentioned earlier, you described them as, as the guide. What is the first step in the process? What, what sort of assessment is taking place uh, for the individuals that are being brought into the Viomedicus solution?
3: What we do first of all, obviously is we we find them and then we have the individual um, recommended the program by their own primary care physician so that we are working side by side with the with their primary care doctor and once they sign into our program, we do a uh, an initial health assessment. So that we get a, an understanding of not just their health, but really their well-being and the sense and to find out how much control they feel that they have over their life and over their health. And
1: talk to us briefly about the technology uh, behind, the, behind the platform. How, does the, how is the technology improving the experience uh, in a way that, that uh, perhaps has not existed in the past?
3: Sure. The technology is really an amplifier for our licensed clinical social worker. It also collects data about the, um, the life of the individual who is enrolled in our program. Our, our technology platform also um, delivers information to the employee uh, about their conditions to help them learn more about it in a very simple way that's available 24-7 and then that way they're starting to to get um, not just a sense of control through their licensed clinical social worker interaction, but also through the fact that they're learning more about their condition and we're helping them walk their journey to better health.
1: Uh, fascinating. And, Mitch, I know you've, uh, you are a quick judge um, of of people in general, and again, that's for a whole another conversation. But uh, you you have focused uh, because of your practice over the past twenty seven uh, years or so. You have been uh, able to spend the time with with people in a way that most uh, physicians have not been able to, and you have uh, you have discovered and uh, I guess the the lack of productivity. By uh, by some employees that uh, that are dealing with multiple conditions, uh, have you found uh, through the Viamedicus solution uh, an improvement uh, in 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 sort of that experience? Absolutely.
4: So absolutely, it's um, to respond kind of to your your statement about a quick judge, and to <laughs> to, to give more to that is because I, because I do I, I agree with you. I am that's my uh, professionally I am uh because of what because I do in my practice what we do at ViMedicus with with a individual it, we could and it, we could do it pretty efficiently by personalizing the care being more of a of a support than a director of the care so for instance in in care we are going to we ask important questions. First thing we're going to do when we get a new enrollee is we're going to ask them, how well do you feel? Or how unwell do you feel? Uh. Why? What's the reasons? And we don't tell them why. We ask why. What their perception as to why. And then, most
1: importantly, what do you want to do about it? And that proactive approach is the Viomedicus difference. Um, Mitch uh, and Kate, thank you so much. We'll definitely continue the conversation, but oh that's all we have time for today. Uh, again, Kate Brady, Vice President of Business Development for Viomedicus, and Dr. Mitch Weisberg, Chief Medical Officer. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I know our listeners can learn more at VicareHealth.com, but we're going to continue the conversation about healthcare with Dr. Fred Jacobs, who's going to talk about foreign trained doctors outperforming U.S. graduates. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Get Down to Business, this show all about small business, jobs, and entrepreneurship. I'm thrilled to be joined by my returning guest, Dr. Fred Jacobs, the executive vice president of St. George's University. Dr. Jacobs, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me absolutely so you uh, you have uh, been serving as the chair of the Department of Medicine, as I mentioned at st George's University, and I know you've been making the case that foreign trained doctors are outperforming u s graduates uh, Dr. Jacobs. Tell us why
5: well they they are in some in some studies the one that we're referring to today is the study done by Harvard Medical School, which looked at Medicare hospital discharges over thirty days and they looked at thousands of doctors, and millions of patients. So it was a huge study, and it showed a statistically significant improvement in 30-day mortality for those patients treated by foreign-trained doctors. Now, uh, I'm really not making the point that foreign-trained doctors are better than U.S. doctors. The point I'm making is that foreign- uh, foreign-trained doctors are not worse. Uh, The study shows that there was uh, some some advantage to going to a foreign trained doctor. It was a small advantage. It was statistically significant. But the reputation or what you hear in some quarters is that foreign trained doctors are substandard and the data simply does not support that.
1: Tell us a little bit about the, uh, any of the differences, if there are any, um, between uh, the training that's, that's taking place. We're using that term foreign trained doctors, but let's talk specifically about St. George's University. What differences uh, are, are, are there as opposed to uh, similar schools and colleges uh, domestic in the United States?
5: Yeah, thanks. So there, really, there really aren't any differences. Uh, the requirements... Uh, for the four-year degree leading to doctor of medicine, are basically an American model. Two years of preclinical work, which is uh, done mainly in Grenada, um, one campus in the United Kingdom. And then all the clinical work uh, is done at either large number of affiliated hospitals in the United States uh, to a lesser extent, but a significant extent uh, in England as well. And those clinical rotations and the requirements that, are placed upon these students, that is, by the uh, requirement to pass all the same exams that the U.S. students pass. These are called the United States Medical Licensing Exam. And you must pass all the parts of that exam uh, required by the Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates. I don't want to get too deep into weeds, but that means that you are taking the same tests and held to the same standards as U.S. graduates are, because you have essentially the same, the same curriculum. And that curriculum is approved by, by, by the states where we have clinical affiliates, like New York, New Jersey, California, Florida, Georgia, just to name a few. Those states and their departments of education have looked at the curriculum, looked at the programs and approved them for clinical work because they meet the standards that are required by, by the states for uh, for individuals going through a medical degree program.
1: And Dr. Jacobs, you have talked uh, a lot about the training, the curriculum. Let's talk about the clinicians and the faculty. Um, I know one of your top priorities um, during your time as the chair of the Department of Medicine is the, and the executive vice president of St. George's University has, has been uh, dedicated to the recruitment of top-tier clinicians from around the world. Uh, tell us a little bit about how... Uh, how that has gone and, and what you look for um, in, in, for, the, for the experience to be uh, comparable or even better than uh, many uh, competing schools in the United States.
5: Right. The, uh, the individual doctors who, who teach our students at the clinical uh, facilities, which means the hospitals by and large, are attending physicians or full-time faculty at those hospitals. Uh, It varies from hospital to hospital. Those are the same faculty, by the way, who teach the U.S. students who are being trained at the exact same hospitals. So in many cases, we have students that are completely commingled with uh, American medical students from a a neighboring medical school. So the faculty are basically the same. These are board-certified doctors who have had a long experience in teaching, and the, the proof of the pudding is that the students do well. Uh, they do well on the on the exams I mentioned before. And the larger proof is that this past year, starting in uh, July of 2017, our, our graduates who applied for residency positions the first year of uh, of training after graduation from medical school, we placed 905 uh, individuals in first-year residency positions throughout the United States. Now, those positions are, those, those students are accepted by individual program directors in the specialties, medicine, pediatric surgery, et cetera, and they're competing for those spots with everybody else. So 905 positions is by a very large multiple, more than any other medical school in the world has uh, placed successfully in United States residency programs. That's, um, that's a fact that really shows the level to which program directors themselves, that is, training program, residency program directors, accept the quality of the St. George's education and the St. George's uh, graduates, because their, their um, objective in accepting somebody into their residency is for somebody they can trust to care for their patients who will give credit to their program and in their institution, and who will eventually pass the specialty board exams, because that that's a very important sure. program to active.
1: Well, Dr. Jacobs, that's all we have time for today. We appreciate you coming back on the air to talk uh, talk a little bit about the experience at St. George's, as well as just foreign, uh, foreign-trained uh, medical students. We'll have you back in the future. Thanks so much for joining us. So the saying goes that this time of year, you know, where we walk in stores and you hear the holiday music playing, you hear "tis the season." Um, and at this point, I'm going to interject: It's "tis the season" for employment law compliance. That's right. Sorry to uh, sorry to break up the festive uh, mode over here, but yes, this is the time of year for employment law compliance. It is already. I can't believe at the end of November. And as we approach Thanksgiving, it means that all of the Black Friday deals, all of the holiday shopping is underway. As I've discovered by walking into multiple stores today, it's uh, it's pushy and it's shovey and it's no fun anymore. With all the upcoming holidays, employers uh, may be wondering if they're legally obligated to offer employees paid time off for any of them. So workplace diversity is a hot topic. Is there and employment law compliance or any obligations regarding cultural holidays and religious beliefs. I wondered about that, so I did a little bit of research for our listeners, and here's what business owners need to know. Contrary to popular belief, there are no federal or state laws requiring employers to give paid time off for the holidays. However, according to a 2016 study by the World at Work Association, most companies offer nine paid holidays as part of the employee benefits package. Employers do, however, have several obligations worth mentioning under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. For example, you have to consider reasonable accommodations for employees' religious observances and beliefs, and you're obligated to... Negate religious discrimination in the workplace. So, how does the law define religious observances or beliefs? The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, defines religious beliefs as uh, theistic beliefs and non theistic moral or ethical beliefs as to what is right and wrong which are sincerely held with the strength of traditional religious views. Those are their words, not mine. Often these beliefs extend beyond requested time off for religious holidays. You may see them in areas like work schedules or the dress code policy. For example, a Muslim woman wearing A kemar, a headscarf for religious reasons, may ask for an accommodation to a no hat clause in your dress code policy. Alternatively, a Jewish employee may request an accommodation to the work schedule during winter months when the sun sets early on the Sabbath. Typically observed beginning Friday at sundown. By law, business needs to make an accommodation unless doing so would cause an undue hardship. So, of course, you're asking what constitutes an undue hardship organizations can prove undue hardship if the accommodation would prove costly compromise workplace safety, decrease workplace efficiency, infringe on the rights of other employees, or require other employees to do more than their share of potentially hazardous or burdensome work. In the previous example, if a Muslim woman works in a manufacturing plant where the Kimar would pose a safety threat with the machinery she operates, you can deny that accommodation request. It would be a different story if the woman worked in an office setting where hats are not allowed due to the impression that they make on customers. Law does not consider anyone's feelings or impressions as an undue hardship. So her employer would... And should consider an accommodation. Does this law apply to every business? Well, I researched that too. And Title VII covers all private employers, and government, and educational institutions with fifteen or more employer employees. However, some states may have anti discrimination laws that are include even smaller companies. Religious organizations can be exempt from Title VII's religious provisions if they if they're if they pursue and their character are primarily religious for example it's legal for a Catholic school to require that its teachers be Catholic Um, so I've got a few quick best practices for you or you want to avoid interview questions that allude or directly ask about a religious belief in fact Establish a list you ask every candidate, write out that criteria for choosing a candidate, and apply it consistently to avoid discriminatory decisions. Create and communicate an anti-harassment policy for your employees. While this may include all harassment, make sure the policy includes religious harassment. It should explain what to do if it should occur. Employees will feel less threatened when reporting harassment if you explain retaliation against a complaint is illegal. You want to train supervisors to identify and manage religious accommodations requests and instances of discrimination. The supervisor should respond promptly and apply the proper corrective action. And you don't want to associate corporate social events and activities with specific holidays. If your company chooses to treat employees to lunch in December, give that occasion a generic name like holiday lunch and consider adding one to two floating holidays to your paid time off policy and allowing flexible work schedules when possible. These opportunities enable employees to schedule work around personal or religious matters, reducing the number of requested accommodations. I hope you find that helpful. Again, tis the season for employment law compliance. I don't want to see any of you getting into trouble this time of year. I realize it's a festive time of year. We've got that holiday music playing. And regardless of what type of company you have, you should. We talk all the time about creating a culture uh, where people want to work. And indeed, there is the right balance between uh, providing that culture uh, but not uh, creating a an environment that is discriminatory to one or many religions so try it out and uh, next week we will include some holiday party tips indeed every company big or small should be should uh, start thinking about holiday parties whether it's for clients or uh, staff, and we'll talk a little bit more about that next week on Get Down to Business. Get Down to Business and lots of helpful information like this for employers and employees alike can be found on the website of our wonderful, wonderful sponsors, Tandem HR. Check them out, tandemhr.com, or give them a call for a free consultation, 630 928 0510, 630 928 0510. Coming up after the break, I've got more tips, advice, and information for all of you small business owners. You don't want to miss it, Chicago. Don't touch the bell. We'll be right back after this quick break. Amyandassociates.com. Dr. Amy and Associates, empowering... Now it's time for your business tip of the week, which can be heard daily on the morning show at 7.30 a.m. right here on AM560, The Answer. So occasionally I get into a kick where I start to do a little bit of research. I block out the time. Uh, That's for another uh, topic. We've talked a lot about time management, but occasionally I just block out several hours to work on research on a specific subject. In this case, I called companies because I wanted to see a little bit about the experience I've Spoken about this on the air many, many times about how people's phone etiquette is. So I called um, many, many, many different companies, all in a specific industry, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, so I can't attach the word success to this project, but it definitely revealed some startling truths about our relationship with the telephone. So what did I discover in these calls? What does it mean for the future of phone conversation? For the past bunch of years, I've uh, been involved in a number of cold calling projects, whether it's for organizations, trying to help them fundraise, or for business, um, actually literally calling and trying to pitch products and services. Um, slowly but surely, I've reduced my time on the phone, but still take care of one or two of these projects a year to make sure my skills align with the market conditions. This year presented me with my biggest learning curve yet. I made, uh, on this specific project a few weeks ago, I made 26 calls to different software companies. and There was a reason I I made those calls to software companies specifically, Um, but traditionally making 26 calls would result in a minimum of four detailed conversation and at least one meeting booked, but that did not happen this time. Only six of those companies that I called had employee-specific voicemail, which allowed me to leave a message, and no one called me back. At the other 20 companies I encountered, there was... In one case, no voicemail at all. A phone ringing in space. Uh, In the second company, it was a dial-by-name directory that took me to voicemail with no name attached to it. Number three was a dial-by-name directory that took me to an employee's voicemail that was full, unable to receive more messages. The fourth was a dial-by-name directory that did not include... uh, our contact, or any executive at the company. Uh, the fifth was an answering service that was only able to accept minimal information. The sixth was a receptionist that would only connect me if they could find me in the company's database. And the seventh was helpful staff who had no idea how to reach the executive I was calling. So while it's tempting to dismiss this trend specifically to these software companies that I was calling, I know that that's not the case. Uh, due to our constant state of overwhelm, uh, which I believe is very real, and more companies labeling phone calls as unnecessary distractions or intrusions and beginning to limit access, we're starting to see specific distinctions between companies that embrace phone communication and those that don't, and the types of clients each attracts and keeps so i'll share more research on this in the coming weeks before new year's yes it is indeed just right around the corner in the meantime i'm curious to have you share your thoughts with me go on my website um, through our contact form by the way i have a brand new beautiful website so check it out um, but go through the contact form let me know what choice you'll make or have you made about the role of the com- of the phone in your company and many many thanks to those of you that have responded publicly and privately to my questions in past weeks. Um, it's always fascinating to hear people's perspectives. People are constantly tweeting at me, Facebooking me, contacting me through the website with so many great ideas, and I encourage that. Again, check out my website, shellamkline.com. That's where you can download podcasts from Get Down to Business. Get a sneak peek of who's going to be on next week on the show, all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. And uh, as we close, I do want to mention that this Saturday is Small Business Saturday that comes between Black Friday and and Cyber Monday, and it's a great time for you to support small businesses in your local community up and down Main Street or whatever the Main Street is in your local community. Visit those businesses, buy your holiday gifts from them, support those stores, uh, so they will be around for your kids. Um, don't take them for granted. Support small businesses on Small Business Saturday, this this Saturday, um, right after Thanksgiving. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy time with your family. We'll talk to you next Sunday on Get Down to Business. Uh, to success, let's get down to business. We'll see you next Sunday at 6 p.m.